Welcome to the Talking Recruitment Podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello everyone and welcome back for another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. Good to have you along again uh, for another episode of Topical Chat and Updates from the REC. Delighted to uh, be focusing in again today on issues around IR35. Uh, our guest today particularly well positioned to, to share insight and feedback with uh, recruiters on that important issue. But before I start, just a few updates from REC Towers to uh, to Mark Ducard. On the 5th of February, we published our latest report on jobs, and that really gave us the first insight into the performance of the labour market uh, in the lockdown that uh, started after Christmas. And while uh, there was clearly evidence of uh, a slowdown in the labour market in total, what was really notable was uh, uh, was that it was much, much smaller than maybe we might have expected at, uh, at this stage. So looking at the uh, at the data, permanent uh, placements fell back in January. Uh, but actually in the private sector, they only fell back very marginally by comparison to December. And that's a good sign that there will be a bounce back once we get out of lockdown. And temporary recruitments, temporary billings still growing. So real evidence there of employers needing to hire, the labour demand being there, but opting more for uh, temp than for perm at the moment because of, uh, uh, because of the uncertainty that's out there, both in terms of the length of the lockdown but also uh, the uh, the effects of Brexit, which we're only, after all, five, uh, six weeks into at this point. The next indication we'll get on the performance uh, of the labour market is when we publish our jobs recovery tracker on the 12th of February. So do look out for that. Uh, that, of course, is our scrape of all of the jobs boards uh, in the UK and looking at postings rates. And that'll give us a sign, about, uh, a sign of how things are moving on. But real sense in everything we're doing at the and seeing at the moment that that Britain is trading through this lockdown in a much better way than we did back in uh, uh, back in the spring of 2020. Uh, some other things just to mark your card on from the REC. Lots of member forums going on, obviously all online at the moment. The sectoral forums, the, the latest one is for our uh, general staffing, blue collar, logistics, dry, dry, driving, and that's on the 18th of February. Um, and we're also running our regional forums, big regional and national focus uh, for uh, for the REC this year and being relevant in every part of the United Kingdom. And we've got our Northern Ireland Forum on the 11th of February. That's going to be a really important discussion, obviously, with the, the much sharper Brexit effects that uh, that we're seeing in Northern Ireland because of the uh, unique nature of Northern, Northern Ireland's position post-Brexit. So lots going on to stay uh, in terms of uh, uh, helping us to hear your views and make sure the REC is working for you. Lots of data coming from the REC. And do look out later in February for a fantastic new report from the REC, which is looking at the good that recruiters do in terms of opportunity and in terms of e economic growth and tells a really positive story about an industry we can be proud of. And we hope that when you see that, you're going to be able to use it with your clients uh, and we can all walk a bit taller in the difference that the industry makes. So really busy February coming up. 
uh, for the REC. Lots going on, but we can't lose sight of the political the political side. Just last week, we uh, 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 put in the REC's uh, pre-budget submission to the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. That's going to be published on the REC website if you'd like to take a look at it. But obviously, we're also running into big changes in April with uh, IR35 on the statute book to change. And that's why I'm delighted to welcome today's uh, today's guest, who's Andy Chamberlain, who's uh, Director of Policy at IPSE. Uh, Andy, welcome to the pod. Hi, Neil. Thanks very much for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, why don't we uh, start off by just uh, making sure everyone uh, understands the uh, 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 the important role that IPSE plays. Tell us a little bit about IPSE and the work you do. So we're IPSE is the Association of Independent Professionals and the Self-Employed. Um, some people may know us from, we changed our name about five years ago. So we were originally called the Professional Contractors Group or PCG, and we were formed in 1999 in direct response to the original IR35. Uh, we basically opposed IR35. So we were, a, we were initially a campaign group that was formed in opposition to this new tax legislation which was coming in, which many people saw as a sort of direct threat to this particular flexible model of working. Uh, now, since then, we've grown and we've talk, we talk about a whole range of different issues from you know pensions to training and skills. And of course, in the last year, uh, everything's become COVID obsessed. So we've been talking an, an awful lot around the support that's been available to various types of self-employed people during COVID. But at our core, you could say this issue of IR35 still very much remains. And for many of our members and for, for me, it's a really, really important issue. It's, it's the most important issue at the moment. And as you say, we've got this change coming in April, which we have opposed that change as well. Um, we don't like the change. Nevertheless, it looks as if it is coming. I don't think there's going to be another delay. So we are at the same time as sort of lobbying government and trying to get them to change their minds. We're also preparing our members for this change. I think that's very similar to position we find ourselves in at the REC, which is uh, it's on the statute, but we know it's coming. The REC has been pushing for a further delay in application to the private sector because we think there are some important uh, regulatory changes that need to happen before you can even consider this kind of change, most notably the effective regulation of umbrella companies, payroll providers, uh, to make sure that there isn't an unlevel playing field uh, for individual contractors and for recruitment firms once the change is made. What's the core of the message that you're offering in advice to contractors at the moment? I think it'd be really good to explore that because, of course, many of the contractors who are your members are working on placements arranged through our members. Yeah, so what what we're telling people is talk to your clients and indeed to your agencies. The supply chain needs to talk to each other as we move towards April. Um, now, for a lot of people, they may have already been deep in discussions with their clients for a couple of months about this process of determining their status. They may um, already know which way their client is going to go on this. They may have already had discussions through the supply chain and have lined up a payroll company or an umbrella company, which they're going to move on to, assuming that the end client has decided that IR35 applies. We know that other contractors have, have left their clients because their clients have said to them that IR35 applies and they, they won't accept that. They disagree. And we know that, unfortunately, some end clients have decided that they're not going to work with contractors at all because you know they've seen this change coming and they've said we're not going to engage people through their limited companies anymore everyone just has to be on the payroll 
And that way, those end clients are sort of ducking the issue entirely because they're, they're, not, they're not doing a status assessment. So some people have already had all this, but many people actually haven't done. There was a survey done recently by Contractor Calculator, uh, which showed that um, around half of the clients that they had surveyed had not yet spoken to their contractors around it. So what we're saying to people is go and talk to your clients Try to get in front of them and say, look, if you believe R35 doesn't apply, then provide them with the evidence of why you think that. You could get your contract reviewed. You may have uh, taken some expert advice externally. You might have even used the government CEST tool. That's the Check Employment Status for Tax tool, which you can go on and use yourself. HMRC don't take a record of that, I should add. There's a little bit of confusion still around this. This is just a voluntary thing. You don't have to do it. But if you do go on there and answer those questions, and we don't love the CES tool, but if it says after you've honestly answered the questions that you're outside of IR35, print that off and take it to your uh, client and say, look, I've used this tool. I think that I'm outside of IR35. What's your view? I think that we can make sure we've got the correct contracts in place here so that we can stay completely compliant with the rules, but ensure that I remain outside. See, that's really interesting because, I mean, like you, we, we, we think there are there are some issues with the CES tool, but it is there and it is on track, as, uh, as you say. And just kind of plugging it together with the chat we had in the last episode of the pod with Martin Jackson from Kroner about the status determination that clients have to undertake. I think it's really important uh, for uh, contractors and for agencies working with uh, contractors to explain to the ultimate client that uh, that in for each role then doesn't need to be a proper status determination um, and just saying well we're not going to use contractors actually opens up the um, uh, opens up the possibility of uh, of uh, of um, work coming into the organization in other ways because if we, there's always going to be a need for kind of term contracted work in in some of these client businesses and uh, you know it goes to the the heart of the conversation I've had with quite a few recruitment firms actually Andrew which is about um, like statement of work and mm. you know could, could could we just do it all via statement of work and the answer is actually no um, and your statement of work is clearly a way of arranging in, input. It's you know basically the the approach that consultancy firms take when they're doing consultancy for uh, for a client. Uh, but the tests around statement of work are ju- are likely to be just as uh, rigorous when HMRC comes to inspect it as as around the status determination. So I, one of the I, I think one of the big jobs is. Uh, for both the REC and IPSA in the next few months is to try and quieten the horses amongst clients about, you know, status determinations are just something you have to do now. Absolutely. That is right. And, and in fact, most of the contractors that we speak to, the thing that they really, really want more than anything else is a proper assessment of their status. What they don't like, what make, what what gets their back up is the idea that there's just going to be, without thinking about it, shoved into IR35 that's perhaps sometimes described as a blanket determination where a client will decide, look, I've got three or 400 contractors here. Um, 
this is all a bit confusing, isn't it? Let's just put everyone inside IR35 because that minimizes the risk for us. And I don't really understand it. And, it, you know, I don't want HMRC to get, I don't want to be in trouble with HMRC. Now, that's a blanket determination. Now, you can't do that. You have to do, in the, the legislation makes it clear that clients have to take reasonable care. Otherwise, they haven't issued this thing called a status determination statement unless they've taken reasonable care. And if they haven't taken reasonable care, then they then they end up with the tax liability anyway. Although it actually in practice gets a bit, you can end up going down a bit of a rabbit hole of trying to work out how that would actually work. But anyway, in theory, at least they shouldn't do that. Uh, and clients uh, and contractors, as I say, they just saying, look, if, if, if we get a proper status determination done and it's decided that this role is within IR35, then fair enough, I will accept it. Because, you know, we've looked, we've had a good look at it and it's not, you know, and I trust the process. Um, and I think that's the key is that clients do need to grapple with these rules. And of course, they can go to external sources of advice. Uh, this is not a plug for Ipsa because we don't do this, but there are other groups out there that do do this. They will come into an organization and they will help that organization do those status determinations. And they will probably do it in quite a fair way. And they will, you know, they, they will. Um, if they think a role is outside of R35, they will say it is. And then the supply chain can take that information and carry on as normal. Um, but where they think that a role is inside R35, they will say that too. And that's where you have to make the change and make sure the tax is being deducted and things. So, yeah, the, the key is do the do the do do a proper assessment. And then on state, just picking up your point on statement at works. Yeah, we, we hear a lot of this as well. And I think that there's a bit of a danger that people fall into here where they think that they find a way around the regulations. Now, statement, well, what I'll do is I'll just, rather than having a normal contract, I'll have a statement at work in place. And that means it will be outside of R35 and I'll just carry on as I did before. The answer is absolutely no, that will not work. Um, now, statement of work, as you say, this is how consultancies often arrange their uh, projects. And probably if you had a proper statement of work and the engagement was really structured in the way it described in the statement of work, it's possible, quite likely even, that it would be outside of IR35. But you really would need to restructure the way that that engagement works. The way that you're providing those services has to completely change. You can't just say, oh, let's put a statement of work in place, but then I'll turn up every day and keep doing the same thing I did before. And, you know, I... It, those same rules of IR35 still apply. You know, are you controlled in how you do the work, where you do it, when you do it? Can you send a substitute? And even mutuality of obligation, which maybe we won't drag ourselves into the myriad complexity of that one just now. But those are the issues that actually will determine the IR35 status of an individual or, or of an individual engagement, I should say. Um, so the fact that you have a statement of work in place, it, it, it's not the important thing. Yeah, I'm just thinking about mutuality of obligation. We we, we should resist the temptation, uh, being as we are probably the two people most likely in uh, it, on the employer side of British employer relations to want to have a really long and dis <laughs> and uh, and uh, and involved discussion of the uh, uh, of employ of employment status. Uh, we should we should draw back from your it listeners. May not thank you for that. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm I'm always available for uh, to any listener for a long chat about the workings of uh, UK employment status and why it's a lot more logical than people have you believe. But um, that picture of um, the necessity of contractors and agencies working together to to get a real process going and a discussion going 
over the next couple of months is really important. It's something that flows through the IR35 hub on the REC website. It flows through the, the sessions we are running at the moment for uh, for agencies on preparing the way. But it's, it's really about getting client attention, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. And, and there is this small client exemption issue, which might be worth touching on, which throws a little bit of a spanner in the works. But you know, most contractors, most of our members we know do not work for small clients, so they wouldn't be impacted by this. But as many of your listeners will know, when the end client is a small organization, actually the, these new rules don't apply. They are exempt. So the whole supply chain then is exempt, essentially from this new what we call chapter 10 of ITPA but this is the new private sector rules in that instance where the end client is small we're back to the old or current IR35 where all the liability and responsibility sits with the contractors limited company Um, so that if you haven't heard from your client and you think that they might be small it could be that that's why you haven't heard from them because they don't actually have to do anything on this now um in fact, REC, uh, supported by IPSE, were quite vocal on this uh, during the consultation phase of this legislation because the government initially had said that the a small end client doesn't have to do anything, doesn't have to even explain to the supply chain that they are small, which would have left all the agencies and the contractors in the supply chain not sure where they are with the liability, you know. Um, and we campaigned and got that changed so that now, if asked, and only if asked, a client has to explain that, yes, they are small, and that is why they are not going to issue a status determination statement. I think that's a really good clarification. We've discussed already um, the fact that both you and I, on behalf of our respective memberships, think that it would be sensible not to do this in April, but we also know that the chances of that happening are, you know, when members ask me, I tend to say not higher than 25%. Um If government does go ahead, as it is on the statute book to do it in April, what are the things that IPSE thinks uh, would make a difference to this working well in terms of the behaviour of HMRC and of government more broadly? This is where it gets tricky. We actually did a webinar with HMRC yesterday and it came out in the discussion there that, that they see their role, or so they say, as when they come to doing compliance on this uh, to ensure that if it looks as if a client has made the wrong decision and put someone inside IR35 or declare that engagement should be inside IR35, they will point that out to the client and reverse that. Now, I think in practice, it's going to be really hard to unravel this if all that tax has been paid because you've got different parties paying different bits of tax because you have an employer's and I charge. So I'm not really sure how in practice that would really work. But that is how, in my sort of dream world, I would like to see it. I mean, IR35 status decisions are confusing. And some clients won't, clients won't get all of them right all the time. I mean, it's just it, that would be, uh, it, it would be unrealistic to say that that would be the case. Um, and so if they get it wrong, and they've got it wrong, but, you know, and they've put an engagement inside of IR35, can we actually address that? How can we go back and say, no, no, that, that's wrong, actually? Let's get this. Let's get. Let's correct that. Um, I would like to see HMRC helping clients to make those decisions, as well as the ones which I'm sure they will do. Of course, where they say, "Hang on a minute, you've got ten engagements over here that you said were outside, and we actually think that they're inside. So we'd like to come after you for a bit more tax, please." Um, 
that 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 that's I, I'd like to see a sort of fairness and even handedness by HMRC when it comes to ensuring compliance with this. Maybe I'm dreaming on that one. I don't know. I don't know what you think, Neil. <laughs> well, I know I think the level playing field is really important as a concept in this. Um, both in that sense and you know from from our perspective as agencies um, you, you look at the kind of the myriad of potential ways of getting around this that people have talked about we've briefly uh, talked on uh, talked about statement of work as an example what I don't want to happen is um, contractors uh, and clients to flow towards uh, people who are willing to try something that might work for a few years or for a, a year or two. Um, and, and that's why for us, the effective regulation and effective enforcement really matters. People might have seen how concerned uh, I am volubly being about the fact that the government is leaving uh, the post of the Director of Labour Market Enforcement unfilled, which effectively means that the Office of, the, uh, of Labour Market Enforcement can't do anything. Uh, for, uh, at least for the next few months. And I think the same is true on the delay on the employment bill, where we absolutely do want to see that really good quality umbrella company regulation pushed through, which is something that our, you know, our colleagues at FCSA, the umbrella organisation, are also supportive of. So I, th I think that piece around how do we do this with a level playing field is super important to us as it is to you. Yeah, I mean, and just to back up your point there on the um, regulation of umbrella companies, uh, there is a huge risk here. The government is aware of it because I've had several meetings, uh, as I think you have, Neil, with HMRC, where they talk about how they're going to ensure umbrella company compliance and all this sort of stuff. So they, they're clearly concerned about it. Um, the, the danger is that people will be will find themselves inside an umbrella company perhaps they'll be attracted by some you know nice looking take home rates um and then essentially what's going on is that that umbrella company is not deducting tax as it should be under the legislation it is doing something weird and wonderful using sort of offshore loan arrangements or share schemes or whatever else it might be and it's giving the um the contractor a bit more money than they might uh, be getting otherwise is taking a nice little cut for themselves and it's not giving the tax man anywhere near enough now we know that this is a bit of a problem and you're quite right fcsa we're good friends with them too and they're, they're doing they're doing their best to actually regulate this sort of on their own that's what they're, they're that's what they've been trying to do for years um, and we often say to our members and again no commercial relationship here but we often say to our members look if you're looking for an umbrella company fcsa accreditation is a good place to start um because you don't want to end up in a scheme where what will happen is at the end of the day these umbrella companies they just disappear and liability will then either flow back up the supply chain up towards the agency potentially or even the end client and it could in some instances go back to the contractor as well because they will not have paid their tax. And that's how, that's how we end up with the loan charge and look at the, the scandal and the problems that that has caused. So we would agree, Neil, you made this point at the very beginning, that we really should have got a handle on this before doing this change to R35. Because one thing we know for certain is that this change to R35 is going to drive business towards umbrella companies. And we know that that's an unregulated and it's a bit of a wild west. There, I should say there's plenty, there, there are some very good compliant umbrella companies out there. I'm not saying that this is true of all umbrella companies, but it is a bit of a wild west and there are you know, non-compliant players within that world. And this, this, 
this change is basically that they're rubbing their hands with glee at this. And I don't think we've done enough to actually make sure that, you know, that this is going to be followed through properly. Look, I think there's something um, really sharp in that, which is about the uh, the need to think at a higher level than the than just the transactions that are taking place now. Um, earlier in the week, Kate Shoesmith and I did our uh, our regular webinar with REC members. We're looking at it the kind of the big themes that will affect the industry going forward. And it's as true for APSA members as it is for um, REC members. And one of the things is supply chain transparency and supply chain accountability. I do think that particularly larger businesses are coming to terms with the fact that beyond the kind of supply chain legal accountability, they have things like modern slavery. Um, that they are being held account for, to account for things that happen down their supply chain now in a way that maybe five or ten years or even uh, even a couple of years ago they weren't being. Um, and you saw some, some very kind of obvious examples of companies named and shamed publicly and suffering reputational damage from decisions they'd made at the beginning of the, uh, of the coronavirus um uh, uh, crisis and I, I just think as part of the all of that there is a a kind of a low road and a high road to responding to where we are and one of the one of the reasons why we've asked Lorraine Larry to step up at the REC and be a, our standards director is that we think that there is co- companies who want long-term sustainability in uh, recruitment and staffing are going to have to win business by uh, quality and standards um, in an environment where for a little while there might be some people trying shortcuts where we, we're going to have to work with the government to iron that out and I think R35 is an example of one of the areas where that that will happen. Yeah you can certainly see in the design of um the, these are our 35 rules and, and particularly thinking about that liability transfer provisions that are within this, which are, to to my mind, sort of quite novel. And when I first saw that, those provisions, we have never uh, Ipse talked too much about this because the transfer, the liability doesn't transfer down to the contractor within those rules. So we'd say, well, that's our, you know, it's not really our, our fight, that one. When I first saw those rules, I didn't really like it. I thought it's not right that one entity can do everything that it, it can do under the legislation, but then be held liable for the bad practice of someone else further down the chain. Though I do, I have somewhat, taking on board what you're saying there, Neil, I have somewhat come round to this idea about actually we've got to take, you know, big, especially if you imagine a big client, they've got to take some responsibility for those supply chains. It's not really on that they could simply say, well, I did my bit, passed down the information, it turns out something bad happened further down the chain, that's got nothing to do with me, when actually this is about the labour that's being provided into their organisations to help drive their profits. So, and, and I think that you're, you're right, Neil, that there's more of this sort of thinking that's going on now about, you know, we, we've got to make sure... Because supply chains have got more complicated over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, haven't they? I, I think. I, I, I think that, you know, 50, 40 years ago, you'd have more just straightforward direct engagements between a worker and an end client. And now those supply chains have become more complicated. But I think we do need to get back a little bit to uh, big clients taking responsibility 
for the behaviours right the way through that supply chain. Yeah, I think, um, and obviously 25, 30 years ago, there'd be things on the staff that, um, you know, over the course of the last 20 years, you've decided are better supplied externally by specialists in that field. That's fascinating, Andrea. Thanks for giving up your time to have a a chat about that and I think it, it really builds on the discussion we had in the last episode uh, with Martin about the work that we have to do both us as the REC representing the industry and and uh, firms talking to both clients and to contractors. I didn't want to miss the opportunity while we had you with us though to talk a bit about the COVID schemes and the COVID response, response because obviously some self-employed uh, people have uh, had access to support uh, through the SACE scheme, but a number of uh, uh, self-employed people have not been able to access support and there's been a big uh, campaign, uh, the excluded campaign about how we take that forward. It's something that we feel very sharply at the REC because we have a large number of uh, owner-operating directors of family recruitment firms in membership who haven't been able to to access support to keep, uh, to, to keep the business going. What are you saying at Ipse uh, to government at the moment about those coronavirus schemes and how we move forward from where we are. Yeah, so this, I mean, like like everyone else, the pandemic came along around March last year and just completely changed, you know, my workload, what, what we're all doing. You know, I've been working from home since March last year, like many people listening to this will have been. Um, so it's it's changed everything. We've been right at the front of campaigning on behalf of self-employed people. So we spoke to the Chancellor just ahead of the setting up of the Self-Employment Income Support Scheme. We welcomed that scheme, but we immediately recognised that it wasn't perfect. And so we, we, though we think, and we still say, that the government did a great job of actually getting that thing set up and rolling it out, implementing it really quite quickly compared, you know, historically it would have taken years to develop something like that, but they got it out there and it got money, they got money out to people and it was generous too, 80% of, you know, historical income. But the problem was there were lots of groups that it didn't benefit from it at all. And what we hoped was that over time we would be able to address those gaps and What's been disappointing is as much as it was brilliant, the the energy and the determination and the rigour that the government put into setting up that scheme and getting it rolled out in the first place, that seems to have dissipated substantially when it comes to, okay, so now how can we improve this? How can we include other groups within it? Because there's plenty of other groups that there's no reason why this self-employed person over here should get quite a generous package of support while this self-employed person over here shouldn't do and just to name a couple of quick groups if you if you'll indulge me neil sorry but um we've got company directors now they've had it really difficult because we call them self-employed you're all self-employed but just some people decide to incorporate a company that's the population that's particularly concerned about ir35 by the way Um, now they are not sole traders so they cannot make use of the self-employment income support scheme they can make use of the furlough scheme but only on the salary element of their pay and they have to furlough themselves and that means if you're the only person in your company the only person doing any work the only person that exists in the company and then you have to furlough yourself with quite strict rules over what you basically can't really do anything apart from file a few, carry out your statutory duties as a company director is, is the rule, like filing accounts at company's house and things like that. You can't speak to your clients. You can't update your website. You can't do some marketing, getting ready for when the upturn comes. 
So the furlough scheme wasn't generous and really restrictive on company directors. So we needed something else for them. And we put forward a proposal in the sum, last summer called Pay Now, Claw Back Later. It was all about basically including their dividends uh, within their historical information so you could calculate a payment based on that. The government has always said, well, we don't know where those dividends have come from. They could have come from an investment. And we've said, well, then we can do a check afterwards. And you can just say when people apply for this, you know, that it needs to be dividends from your company. If you lie about this, you're going to be in serious trouble. I think you'd get like 95% compliance just from saying that. Um, the government and the Treasury Committee loved the idea. They really backed it up um, and they, they included it in their report to government. Government came back and unfortunately said that they considered our proposal in detail and said no. But since then, there have been other proposals. There's one that we supported, not our own proposal, but we supported it called the DIS, the Director's Income Support Scheme. Um, the government, that is with government at the moment, but they're being rather slow to come back on it and getting the sense that it may not be going anywhere. There's been further work done by the all-party group on gaps in support. And then there's other groups too, just quickly, you know, the newly self-employed. These are people who didn't have a tax return for the 18, 19 year, which you had to have had to get into the self-employment income support scheme. Well, we've now passed the next deadline, of course, that was 31st of January of this year. So people have got their tax returns in for 1920. Can we include them now in the SAIS scheme? We are pushing government right now to do that. And we hope we might get somewhere with that one. Thanks for that. I think that's really clear. And of course, we've got some evidence of parts of the country where things are being done on this now, uh, most notably Northern Ireland, uh, where the executive there has taken more decisive action than your scheme, the FSB scheme, this, that um, uh, uh, that are there. And one of the messages that we've put into government on this, just as we close off, is um, I think there was a, almost an ideological decision made in government back in March last year, which was that company directors pay themselves with dividends and then and therefore are liable to uh, maybe liable to lower tax and that therefore they've had that advantage for a long time. So we're not focusing on on them in the support scheme. And I think even if you think that ideological decision was supportable back in March last year, I think it. We're not in March last year now. We're in February 2021. We're, we're, we've been through an 11-month crisis, and these businesses are at the heart of our bounce back. So it's definitely, it's really time for government to step up on this, and it's a, it's a key point that we make in our submission to the uh, to the Treasury before the before the budget that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but useful to understand the work that you've been doing because I think that's a critically important. Um, area for uh, IPSA members and also many REC members and I know uh, you know we continue to work well together on it. Um, Andrew that's been a really great run through um, some of the the critical areas we need to be working together on as contractors and agencies over the next few months. If people want to read a bit uh, more about IPSA and the work you do where can they look? Go to ipsa.co.uk. Uh, we have an IR35 hub on there and a COVID hub as well. So lo loads and loads of information in there. And um, sign up to our newsletter to hear about our webinars. They're free for anyone to join. We're doing, you know, since the lockdown started, yeah, I'm sure like REC, we've been doing more frequent webinars. We don't have any live events that we can organize now. So we're doing lots and lots of webinars. As I say, we had HMRC on yesterday. We've got one next week with the AAT looking ahead to the budget. So we've got a great program of stuff. So do, do come and check out our website, sign up to our newsletter. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll echo that by saying, of course, the REC uh, website has uh, our own COVID and IR35 hub with lots of inf information on it there and the, IR, uh, the REC IR35 events that I, uh, that I mentioned earlier are bookable online uh, there. Uh, thank you. Uh, all for joining us on uh, this episode of the REC pod. Thanks again to Andrew for joining us from Ipsay. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, why not check out uh, our back catalogue? You can see the whole of our 2020 back catalogue on the on the website and where you usually get your podcasts. Uh, but already this year, we've had uh, this episode and a great last episode, episode two for 2021 on IR35 with Martin Jackson, uh, Head of Employment Tax and training at Kroner. Those two go together in terms of preparing the way for our 35 change in April. Um, an episode one back at the beginning of January uh, with Lorraine Larry, our Recruitment Standards Director, really updating you on all the latest on both the COVID schemes and the Brexit deal and its and its operation. So if you enjoyed this episode, uh, do uh, check out the back catalogue and I'll be back soon uh, with another episode of Talking Recruitment, the uh, REC podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.